Jeremiah 32 is the text of the sermon. Jeremiah 32. I'm reading from chapter 32. I just want to uh, select some verses out of the first 15 and kind of give you an idea of what this passage says. Preaching under the title of Living in Hope, and that's what this is about. Jeremiah 32. I'll read verse 2 and then skip to verse 6. Now at that time the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard, which is in the house of the king of Judah. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field, please, that is at Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field which was at Anathoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, seventeen shekels of silver. And I signed and sealed the deed, and called in witnesses, and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of, Ma of Mashiach, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I commanded Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, these sealed, this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed and put them in an earthen jar that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Now verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and thine outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for thee. Sometimes pep talks are more appropriate when you're halfway along. When you're, too, when you're too far from the beginning to be pushed by the novelty of the new, and you're too far from the end to be pulled by a vision of the imminent conclusion. Sometimes pep talks are better for halftime. Now, I know you know that I played for the mighty Monday Moguls. It may shock you to find out that the Moguls were not always mighty. As a matter of fact, we were terrible. Uh, the first couple of years I played, when I was a freshman, we had a perfect record. Zero and ten. No wins, 10 losses. And sometimes we would just be getting drilled before halftime, you know, 42 to nothing. And it was a kind of a curiosity to uh, try to 
guess what the coach was going to say in his halftime talk. Quite a challenge. You know, what do you say to pep one up when you're 42 behind at the half? Greater challenge for the cheerleaders. I mean, what would they say? Our team is red hot? You know, they wouldn't say that. Nor would they go to that one that's so popular, watermelon, watermelon, watermelon rind. Look at the scoreboard and see what you find. No, you wouldn't get into those. So it became quite a challenge as to, you know, what you're going to say at halftime to pep somebody up. Usually the coach's pep time, pep talk at halftime was kind of a talk to keep us from quitting. You know, throwing in the towel and raising the white flag. Just hang in there kind of was the theme. Now I may be speaking to some of you this morning who, who have been whipped down so much that you wonder if it's even worth coming out for the second half. Jeremiah was such a man. In the halftime of his ministry, he delivers one of the greatest pep talks in the history of man. For in a few months, Jeremiah's whole nation is going to come to a disastrous end. It's going to be completely and totally destroyed. Let me give you some background. Jeremiah lived in the 80s, just like you and I live in the 80s. But his century was six, the 6th century B.C. He, he lived in 580 B.C. when he began to preach. And the nation, what we know now as modern-day Israel, was then Palestine or Canaan, was called the land between because it was locked in between superpower to the south, Egypt, and a succession of superpowers to the north and east, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. And this nation of Israel was a kind of a buffer between these great nations, these big boys. And they not only fought Israel, but they fought over Israel because she was this buffer between these great warring nations. And all the trade that went on from north to south passed through Israel. The great coastal highway ran along the Mediterranean and the city of Megiddo that you are familiar with in church history was there. And the historians and archaeologists tell us that Megiddo fell 20 times. And archaeologists have found that the city of Megiddo was built on top of, on top of layer of layer of layer so that it changed hands 20 times as these nations warred over Israel. Now by the time Jeremiah 32 is, the nation of Israel has been swept away and carried into captivity and the, the, the northern kingdom and so the kingdom of Judah remains with its major city of Jerusalem. And Babylon is rising to national prominence and power and she's getting ready to invade this buffer kingdom and control the trade route. And these kings of Judah are going to, you know, they're going to resist Babylon, as foolish as that seems. And Jeremiah the prophet warned against it. Don't, he said, try to war against these big boys. You're going to lose. Cooperate with them. But they did anyway. And first of all, there was a king by the name of Jehoiakim as Babylon began its first invasion into, into Judah. 
And he resisted the Babylonian invasion. And so Nebuchadnezzar just kind of flicked him like you would flick some lint off of your suit and carried 3,000 of the choice citizens of Jerusalem away into captivity and replaced Jehoiakim with his son Jehoiakim. And so Jehoiakim began to rebel against Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar came a second time. This time he took 10,000 of the leading citizens into captivity and replaced Jehoiakim with a puppet king by the name of Zedekiah. And the Egyptian nation is prodding Zedekiah to resist Babylon. And so he does. And Jeremiah warns, don't do it. It's, it's suicide. It's disastrous. And they throw him in prison. They're tired of hearing this, I told you so. This, they considered him a traitor. And they threw Jeremiah in prison. And Nebuchadnezzar is coming for the last time to Jerusalem to destroy it. I want you to get the picture. There are thousands of troops from Babylon outside the city of Jerusalem just getting ready to annihilate it. They're going to topple all the buildings. They're going to burn the temple. They're going to take the people away into captivity and separate them. And Jeremiah is in prison. And while he was in prison, God spoke to Jeremiah and said, I want you to go out to Anathoth and buy some land there. And I just wish I could have seen his face. Surely you've got to be kidding, God. Surely you don't want me to invest in land at this time while the Babylonians by the thousands are encamped on the land that he's talking about, just two miles outside the city of Jerusalem. And then his cousin comes to confirm God's word. And his cousin says, Jeremiah, I want to make you a deal. I got some land I want to sell you. It's a buyer's market. I mean, land is going cheap. You can get all the land you want pretty cheap. I've got some land in Anathoth I want to sell you. And Jeremiah got all the officials of the city and he signed all the documents and he bought the land. And this is the reason why he bought the land. Because he said, the word of God came to me saying, houses and vineyards and, and fields will be bought in this land again. And he wanted Jeremiah to make an investment in hope. And I submit to you that his purchase of that land in Anathoth is the greatest illustration of a man living in hope in the history of the human race. I want to give you a definition of hope. Every time you see that word in the Old Testament, it's always associated, at its root is the word anticipation, something anticipated that is pleasant. It is a confident and joyful expectation it's not crossing your fingers and really hoping for the best. It's an anticipation of something pleasant yet to be. I've been practicing little dribblers today. And I say, well, great. How's your team? Are you smoking them? And he said, well, we're going to be five and four. And I said, well, what's this going to be five and four business? And he said, well, I know we can win the next two. 
<laughs> That's a perfect, well, I mean, realistically, the record is three and four. But I mean, he's already counting, you know, the next two. We're going to win the next two. And I thought, now that's, that's the example of biblical hope. G.K. Chesterton said, when everything is hopeful, really, all you have are platitudes and flattery. It is when everything is hopeless that hope begins to strengthen the heart. Then he said this. He said, like every Christian virtue, Hope is as unreasonable as it is indispensable. And I want to take that that thought and I want to talk to you this morning about living in hope which is both unreasonable and indispensable. It's unreasonable. Hope is not blind, it's not ignorant, it is not trivial. Jeremiah wasn't ignorant and blind to the reality of the tragedy that confronted his life. I mean, he didn't just turn his head and ignore the fact that thousands of soldiers were camped on the land he was about to buy. He stared down the red raw throat of reality and purchased the land because hope is not a Pollyanna that tells us that everything's all right when we know it isn't. Hope triumphs over the circumstances that are designed to create despair and it is always born on a darkened stage. It's always born in trouble. It is always unreasonable. If it is reasonable, it cannot be hope. One biblical scholar said, that the word hope in the Bible appears, increases in number and in depth in the dark nights of trouble and despair among God's people. It is always born out on a darkened stage. It is always born in trouble. So that the world's greatest songs were sung by the people whose hearts are hurt by the hand of sorrow. And the greatest paintings ever painted were painted by an artist whose brush was tinted with the blood of his wounded spirit. And the greatest music ever written was written in the dark nights of despair. And so Jeremiah looked out and saw the imminent destruction of his city and nation and bought land. For even though hope is unreasonable, it is not illogical. You see, for Jeremiah's decision to buy that land was based on the conclusion, the conviction that there were more out there than Babylonian soldiers. God was out there. God was in the midst of the suffering. And when you compute that fact into the equation and you add this component that the, the, the character and the compassion of God, it makes hope much more reasonable. Well, you see, hope is not based upon circumstances. Hope is based upon the God who presides over the circumstances. Let me tell you what despair is. Despair is looking around us and seeing the conditions and the circumstances 
And hope is what looks beyond those conditions and those circumstances and fastens its gaze upon the God who presides over them. It's not illogical. And so one day God called Abraham to the door of his tent. And here was this man, the Bible says, as good as dead, 90 years old, without a child. And God said, I want you to look out at the stars. And he saw those white, glistening stars like little daisies on a blackened metal. And God said, you count the stars and that'll be as they are as, your seed will be as numerous as, as those stars. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Everything that he saw was, was unreasonable, but he hoped anyway. There's an oft-told story of Martin Luther this man who was so courageous that he went against prophets and kings and priests. And one morning he came down for breakfast and his wife was dressed in mourning in black. And he said, well, who's dead? She said, haven't you heard? God is dead. He said, well, that's blasphemy. She said, well, the way you've been acting, Martin, God must be dead. He had enough sense to know then that a man who has his hope grounded in the eternal God cannot go around moping and mourning. Now what is this God like that we're asked to hope in? Well, let me just refer you to the text and, and show you two things about Him. First, He is the eternal Creator. He says that in verse 17. Now I don't know all the implications of that, but I know that one implication of that is that if He is the eternal Creator, He has the ability to accomplish purpose. For we're confronted in life with a major question, and the question is, is there anything too hard for God? Now hopelessness says that there are some things that are too hard for God. There are some of you this morning, maybe not in this congregation, but listening and watching on television, who have given up hope. What you have done is you've said, this thing that confronts my life is too difficult for God. But hope says there is nothing too difficult for God. And what it means when he says it's, that he is the eternal creator is that it is, it is, that it is possible for us to take the longer view of life, you see. Martin E. Moeller was a man who stood against Hitler and the Nazis, a, a, a pastor, a preacher. And it got him thrown in prison for it. He was in jail because of it. And, 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 and Martin E. Moeller triumphed in that prison because he had this abiding, confident conviction in the eternality of God. And this is what, Martin, this is what J. Wallace Hamilton said about, about Martin, Mueller, Martin E. Mueller. He said he was always listening to the tick of an astronomical clock, knowing that the centuries belong to God, whatever the ages seem to say. I love it. Hopeful people are the people who are listening to this astronomical clock who are believing that ultimately the bottom line is that God's way is going to triumph and God's will is going to be done. Now the ages 
The troops that are encamped outside the walls seem to say something else, but the eternality of God says it's going to be all right. What kind of God is He? In the second place, He is a God of redemptive purposes. Now, if you followed on in the 32nd chapter, you would read there that Jeremiah just begins to account what God had done for Israel. He tells about being brought out of, of Egyptian bondage and given their freedom and brought into the land, etc. You know what he's doing? He's helping us to see that if we have lost hope, it's because we've forgotten some things. It's what John Claypool calls the wages of amnesia. He's saying you need to remember before you lose hope what God has done in the past. And when you begin to remember how God has been redemptive in His, in His activity in Israel, it'll help you to see that that's the way it's going to be again because God can't be any other way. And God even takes our sorrows and our tragedies and He accomplishes redemption in them and through them. So that whatever happens in life, whatever occurs, you can go ahead and buy land in Anathoth, in Anathoth because there are going to be trees there and there are going to be houses there. There are going to be fields there. If you ever travel to Jerusalem, you'll have an opportunity of buying a tree to be planted in Jerusalem and they sell those trees to be planted in Jerusalem and they take it right out of this text because a man years before calling the people of Israel to remember what God had done, God will do again. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten the blessing that God has been to your life and the things that God has wrought in your life? And what God has done in the past Jeremiah is saying, God will do again. There'll be trees here and houses here and land here again. Hope is unreasonable. But hope is also indispensable. Helmut Tielicke, the German theologian, said it like this. He said, radical hopelessness is in fact lifelessness. It is the death of humanity. And it is. And it would have been the death of Israel had it not been for hope. Israel would have never come back. The Jews would have never returned to Jerusalem. And there would have never been the enfolding of what we know today as modern Christianity had there not been burning in the bones of these men hope. For when you lose hope, you die. It's like suffocating. A man who can't hope can't get his breath. For basic to life at the, itself, the essence of life itself is to hope, is to anticipate that it's going to be five and four. That it's going to, regardless of what it looks like now, the ultimate bottom line is that God is going to triumph. If you can't believe that, you die. And when this church ceases to have that kind of hope and that kind of dream, this church dies. 
I was attracted to the possibility of being the pastor of this church six years ago by this very fact that men like uh, Joe Leland and uh, Jim Cunningham and, and uh, Jerry and, 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 and Charlie and Henry all it conveyed to me that, that germane to the life of this church was a burning vision and hope for the future. And when we lose that, we die. We cease to be. And I can imagine that years upon years later, hundreds of years later, when, when these men came back from Babylon, Jeremiah was already gone, already dead, died in Egypt. When these men came back from Babylon and they moved into Jerusalem and took up where they left off, their forefathers left off, they went out and stood on the land that had been purchased by Jeremiah and they uncovered the earthen jar that had the deeds on it and they read again of a man of hope. Well, you see, hope is passed down. It's passed to the next, to the next. What I long to see in my lifetime is a person or persons who would walk down aisles of churches or wherever and would say, I live in the confidence that God's way is going to triumph in this world and God is in control and I want to be a man demonstrating hope. I want to pass that down to the next generation. I want to buy some land in Anathoth. We see hope can be demonstrated. The exact opposite is also true. Hopelessness can be demonstrated. Gene Peterson said, it's a lot easier to languish in despair than to live in hope. For to live in despair, we can live logically and shiftlessly with an untarnished reputation of practicality current with the way things appear. It's fashionable, she said, to espouse the latest cynicism. Let me tell you something. We have a kingdom full of people who know how bad it is. We have a kingdom full of pessimists who know why it won't work, who have calculated the unreasonableness, who, understand, who can identify the foolishness and the lack of logic. We have a kingdom full of people who know the cost. What we need is a Jeremiah who will invest in hope that is unreasonable and will demonstrate it before the rest of the world. That, my friend, impacts. And I can just imagine that the people when Jeremiah did what he did, they must have got around and snickered and laughed and said, did you see, do you know what he did? He bought some land out in Anathoth. What a stupid... Man, you talk about... I got some marshland I'd like... I got a bridge I'd like to sell. You know, that kind of joking. That's... You see... I suppose that any time a man lives in hope, he has to go against the stream. 
He has to move against the, the, and, uh, the, the fashionable cynicism as to why he shouldn't do it and why it won't work. But we have to confront that basic question that is at the heart of all of it. Will it not work? If it won't, it must mean that God can't do it all, can't do, any, can't do everything. Is anything too hard for God? You know what hope is? Hope is saying nothing's too hard for Him. A few years ago, Hallmark Hall of Fame theater on television had the story of a man, of a little boy being kidnapped. The story was about this kidnapping. But the plot was, as it unfolded, was that they were asking the media not to tell about it because it was necessary to the survival of the little boy, his safety, that nobody knew about the kidnapping while the FBI, the, the, the law enforcement officials worked to free him. Now you have all these media people whose job it is to get out the word, ask not to do that. And as the plot develops, you can see that they became more interested in saving the little boy than in getting out the story about his capture. And when he was finally saved, and you know, had a happy ending, here's this old uh, uh, veteran media guy, this reporter, this is what he said. He said, for 25 years I've been writing stories about life. This is the first time I've had a part in making the story come out right. Let me tell you, it's one thing to tell it like it is. It's one thing to write the story about what's it like. It's another thing to live in hope to make it different. And Jeremiah was a man who was committed to making it different, making it come out right. And it is impossible to live in hope without that kind of response. I put my hands to making it right. And we can understand kind of why Willard Hatch, Hatchkiss, the pioneer missionary, would say something like this. He said, for 40 years I've served virtually alone as a missionary in Africa. Thirty times I've endured the fever. Three times I've been attacked by lions, more than that, rhinoceri. But I say to you, I would do the whole thing over again for the joy of taking the name Savior and flashing it into the light, into the darkness that envelops an African village. Now this is what Jeremiah did. He found the joy of taking the name Jehovah and flashing it into the darkness that surrounded that day with despair. He was a man of hope. Would you pray with me? Father, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground 
is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And we remember that you did an unreasonable thing of your own when you purchased our redemption at Calvary and became an illustration or a picture of what we're to do in life, to purchase the land that's overrun by the enemy and live in the triumphant confidence that you indeed are a rock. And I pray for those of us who have no hope and those of us who exhibit pessimism and hopelessness that the church saved shall become the church triumphant because I pray in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you to consider these invitations. Listen carefully. The Bible says that without Christ, you are without hope. Alone in the world, the Bible says, and without hope. Jesus' death at Calvary and the subsequent resurrection from the dead accomplished an eternal redemption that you claim by faith. And in that redemption there is hope, eternal abiding anticipation of things pleasant yet to come. Without Christ and without hope, some of you. The second invitation this morning is for us who have just been overrun in the first half with defeat to lay hold upon the God who is presiding and reigning, to become the militant, triumphant, optimistic, hopeful people that God's people should be. And I invite you to come this morning to rededicate yourself to Christ, to find that joy of hope, or to place your life here in prom on promise of letter by statement. My plea is that you do the bidding of God, you do the will of God while we stand to sing. You do it while we, while we stand, you come.